You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States and the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer, the opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individual's employers, nor the official opinions of C-19. By the end of 1856, Walt Whitman had published the first two editions of his unorthodox volume of poems titled Leaves of Grass. The reception was mixed, to say the least. Whitman had produced those editions in rapid succession, yet both were commercial flops and attracted little more than ridicule, and pretty juicy ridicule at that, in the literary press. Whitman felt abandoned by his publisher, was strapped for cash, and seemed to struggle to generate any interest in yet another edition of Leaves, though he was tinkering. These years, 1856 to 1860, are generally seen as a black hole in Whitman's biography, both for a relative lack of biographical information, as well as for the poet's presumed state of mind. Still, they're also often described as a period of transformation, culminating in a drastically different third edition of Leaves in 1860. So these antebellum years of Whitman's life remain murky and shrouded in speculation. Few things are certain, although it has long been suggested that Whitman spent a good portion of this time employed at the Brooklyn Daily Times, the last in a long line of editorial posts he had held at New York newspapers beginning in the 1840s. Yet scholars have never been able to agree about precisely how long and to what extent Whitman was employed at the Brooklyn Daily Times. And then why would Whitman return to writing unsigned newspaper pieces for a local daily paper, no less. Enter a team of scholars from the Walt Whitman Archive, led by Project PI Kenneth M. Price, and made up of members from four different universities and a variety of academic backgrounds. The group has secured a three-year grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities to sleuth out the exact nature of Whitman's involvement with the Brooklyn Daily Times and shed light on what might just turn out to be the most productive period of Walt Whitman's writing life. I'm Matt Cohen, one of the co-directors of the Whitman Archive with Ken Price and Ed Folsom. I'll let the project team leaders introduce themselves. Jason? I'm Jason Stacy. I'm a professor of history at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. I've been a contributing editor for the Walt Whitman Archive since 2012. My first book, Walt Whitman's Multitudes, published in 2008, explored Whitman's journalism in terms of his shifting print personas and his interest in labor. In 2009, I edited Leaves of Grass 1860, the 150th anniversary edition, and in 2015, I co-edited Walt Whitman's Selected Journalism. Last year, I shifted gears a bit and published Spoon River America, Edgar Lee Masters and the Myth of the American Small Town, 
but I also started work on this NEH grant to find Walt Whitman in the Brooklyn Daily Times. So I guess you could say I keep coming back to Whitman. I'm Stephanie Blaylock, and I'm a digital humanities librarian in the Digital Scholarship and Publishing Studio at the University of Iowa Libraries. I currently serve as the Iowa Project Manager and as the Associate Editor of the Walt Whitman Archive, as well as the Associate Editor of the Walt Whitman Quarterly Review. My first book, Go to Fafs, The History of a Restaurant and Lager Beer Saloon, was published in 2014 by Lehigh University Press and The Vault at Fafs as a digital edition that is freely available online. I have also published on the reprinting and circulation of Whitman's fiction. I'm Kevin McMullen. I'm a research assistant professor in the English department at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and a fellow in UNL's Center for Digital Research in the Humanities. I've been on the staff of the Walt Whitman Archive since 2010, and since 2018 I've served as the project manager. I'm also the project manager of the Charles W. Chestnut Archive, as well as the editor and co-creator of Fanny Fern and the New York Ledger, which is a digital edition of Fanny Fern's newspaper columns. And I'm also one of the grant writers and editors on the Whitman Archive's current NEH grant to investigate Whitman's journalism. And my name is Stefan Schuberlein. I'm an assistant professor of English at Texas A&M University, Central Texas, as well as a contributing editor to the Walt Whitman Archive. Uh, my scholarship related to Whitman has appeared in journals such as American Literature, College Literature, and the Walt Whitman Quarterly Review, among some others. I'm also one of the editors of the forthcoming Oxford Handbook of Walt Whitman, and I have just published an edited collection of Whitman's New Orleans prose with LSU Press. A great group with a lot of experience. So, Jason, perhaps you could start us off by giving our listeners a sense of what is so challenging about finding Whitman in the Brooklyn Daily Times. Why does it require a team of half a dozen scholars to figure out what he wrote? Well, Matt, the challenge to finding Whitman in the Daily Times is an old one. First of all, it's really difficult to identify authors of most newspaper editorials during this time period since they were often unsigned. For some of Whitman's earlier journalism, he was named as an editor of a particular newspaper, for example, at the New York Aurora, which he likely edited in the spring of 1842, or the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, which he edited from 1846 to 1848. In both of those examples, Whitman was named at one point in the paper itself as the new editor. And this allows us to infer that many of the articles on page two of each issue, especially in column one, were likely by Whitman, since this space was typically the prerogative of the editor. But the Brooklyn Daily Times is trickier. We don't have any contemporaneous manuscript evidence that Whitman was editor of the paper, or at least that we've found yet. In fact, most of the evidence we have names him as an editor well after the fact, starting in the mid-1860s, when he's confirmed by the paper as what they called the de facto editor for a very short time, and later through the 19th and early 20th centuries when the Daily Times, in periodic retrospectives on its history, claims Whitman as one of their own. These references, interestingly, grow more emphatic as the poet's reputation rose after the Civil War and into the early 20th century. However, scholars have looked for a long time for signs of Whitman in the Daily Times, but they've often had conflicting results. Whitman himself confirmed that he edited the Daily Times in a letter to another editor named Charles Skinner, later editor of the paper, 
And this letter he wrote to him uh, in 1885, Whitman claimed that his editorials were instrumental in seeing through certain improvements in the plan for the Brooklyn Waterworks. And Skinner went on to write an article called Whitman as Editor for the Atlantic Monthly in 1903. And this further cemented Whitman's place in the history of the paper. Later, in 1932, Emery Holloway and Vernolian Schwartz published a selection of what they claimed were Whitman's editorials from the Daily Times. And in, and in 1969, William White published a bibliography of Whitman's journalism, and it listed nearly 1,200 Daily Times editorials that were supposedly by Whitman. But most of this identification was based only on a few pieces of evidence. For example, Whitman's short letter to Skinner in 1885 or the Daily Times' own retrospective claim that Whitman was once their editor in some capacity, and also based on scholars' sense that many of these articles felt or sounded like Whitman. But not all scholars were convinced. Jerome Loving, for example, in his biography called Walt Whitman's Song of Himself, published in 1999, claimed that, quote, the empirical evidence that Whitman edited the Daily Times is almost non-existent. Karen Carbiner, on the other hand, argued in 2015 that, quote, compelling evidence exists for Whitman as de facto editor as early as 1856. When Doug Nover and I edited Walt Whitman's Selected Journalism, we split the difference. And we argued that Whitman began his affiliation with the Daily Times sometime in 1857 and wrote for it steadily until mid-1859. But Michael Robertson, in his review of our selected journalism, was still wondering how any writing in the Daily Times could be confirmed as Whitman's. So needless to say, the potential for a large and unconfirmed corpus of Whitman's journalism during the significant period of his writing in the late 1850s is a tantalizing proposition. Tantalizing indeed, and such a crucial period in U.S. history too. So, Stefan, let me ask you... How did you go about solving this problem that so many previous scholars struggled with? Yeah, um, so we really went with a multi-pronged approach here because it was very important for us to avoid some of the issues that previous assessments of Whitman's writings for the Brooklyn Daily Times had and that Jason has already talked about a little. Namely, that these previous assessments were based on one or two scholars sitting down and going through the paper and basically just picking and choosing whatever they believed sounded like Whitman. So instead of that, we decided to go with a much more open-ended approach. And that's sort of a multi-step thing. So first, we divide up the paper into chunks. And then all of us read through, say, a year of the paper together. And then we try to figure out what kind of coherent arguments about specific topics can we identify in that piece of the paper. For instance, there is clearly somebody at the Brooklyn Times who was very, very fascinated with health topics. And that person returns to those same arguments over a multi-month, multi-year period, right? So we can reasonably assume that this is probably a single person writing on that specific topic at the Brooklyn Daily Times. Because there's this coherence of voice and argument, and we did this with other topics as well, right? There's public sanitation, political issues, local quarrels over keeping the Sabbath, and a lot of sort of very 19th century topics like those. So once we have this coherent argument identified and we sort of figured out where it ends and where it begins, we can then check if we can find any manuscript evidence or biographical echoes that we can use to connect this narrative to Whitman. For instance, 
There are articles where a journalist muses on the topic of spiritualism, and he mentions a specific medium. And we have surviving letters by Whitman indicating that he went to that very medium at the very specific time that said article appeared. So clearly, that's very likely Whitman. And if there's other uh, follow-up articles, we can also assume that's probably by the same author, hence also by Whitman. And we do have also a pretty good understanding of some of the other folks working at the Brooklyn Times by now, which also helps us to hypothesize sort of who may or may not have written about specific topics. Fascinating. But you've also relied on computational assessments, right? Yes, correct. That's actually one of the reasons why I'm on board for this grant. Because once we have one of these themes or topics that I talked about assembled, we actually end up with a fairly sizable set of texts that we can then access stylometrically. So we have these fairly longish corpora that appear to be by a single author, and we can then run a computer-assisted language comparison, in essence. Um, we have a great piece of software named RStylo, which is a little plugin for R, which turns all of these texts into ranked lists that create a sort of language profile, which we can then use to compare to Whitman's, and also to a bunch of other contemporary writers that we have these profiles for. By itself, that doesn't guarantee that Whitman is the author, but it does add positive weight to the rest of our attribution, and it might even help us rule out Whitman early on in the process if we believe he may not be a specific author for a specific theme. Very cool. So a combination of old-fashioned careful reading and computational analysis. You've already mentioned a short piece about Whitman visiting a medium. Are there other examples of themes or topics that you've already identified as Whitman's? Yes, absolutely. Um, we're actually putting the final touches on one of those topics right now, and it's a really fun one. Um, fun to us, at least, I should say. And it's Whitman advocating for the Brooklyn Waterworks. It's a topic that Whitman scholars may have actually heard about, maybe spotted in a footnote somewhere, because this is a topic that Whitman himself later recounts writing about. Jason has already mentioned that Whitman was actually asked about the Brooklyn Daily Times uh, in the 1880s, and we do have his reply letter. And in that, he states that in 1856, he worked as a, quote, editorial writer in the Brooklyn Times office, and he published on the, quote, question of the waterworks. He even says that he, quote, bent the whole weight of the paper steadily in favor of this one specific, more expensive plan for the works. So naturally, we spend a whole bunch of weeks and months really digging through all of the editorials on the topic of the waterworks. So now we know, for example, more about a mid-1858 controversy over an open aqueduct versus a covered conduit than anyone would possibly ever want to. But what we found was the kind of thing we were really looking for here, a clear, coherent line of argument pursued in the paper between late 1856 and going all the way to the opening of the waterworks in 1859. And we assessed that stylometrically as well and found it to align quite wonderfully with Whitman's voice as well. And it's a pretty fascinating read at times, again, at least to us. Um, Whitman, for instance, compares the project of the waterworks to Rome's famous aqueduct system and in sort of characteristically hyperbolic fashion, essentially claims that the system in Brooklyn will be one of the wonders of the world. But of course, he also has a much more pragmatic reason for celebrating the works and arguing for the more expensive version here as well, because he was supporting his brother Jeff, 
who was working as an engineer and possibly a surveyor on the project. So uh, let's look at one of these. Here we have Whitman in a little article that reflects on a guided tour of the uh, waterworks in progress, and it was published in April of 1858. Yesterday's jaunt over the whole 22 miles line of this improvement has impressed us in a new and more marked manner with the vastness, perfect science, inexhaustible supply, unrivaled purity, and general far-sightedness of the whole plan, theory and practice of the Brooklyn Water Works. It is evidently one of the grand works of the world, having no superior anywhere, imperfect in no respect, but one, and that to be remedied, everything on a scale fit for the people of one of the principal and most populous cities in America, with, it remains to be added, that exception, the open canal between the Hempstead Pond and Baisley's. That is the only flaw. I'm sure folks in Brooklyn will be delighted to learn that they're sitting on top of one of the grand works of the world. Um, so, Stephanie, you found Whitman writing about the waterworks elsewhere, too, right? That's right. We decided to take a closer look at the document Karen Carboner points to as evidence of Whitman's editorial involvement with the Brooklyn Daily Times. She cites a manuscript Whitman titled Important Questions in Brooklyn Concerning the City's In-Progress Waterworks, and she agrees with Whitman scholar Fredson Bowers, who had previously read this manuscript as a draft of an editorial for the Brooklyn Times. Carboner also offers this Waterworks manuscript as evidence that Whitman was at work on the third edition of Leaves of Grass during his tenure at the paper because Whitman's Waterworks manuscript is written on the back of a draft for the second poem in the Calamus Cluster. Calamus was a sequence of poems on male-male love, first published in Leaves of Grass in 1860. Whitman's Waterworks manuscript centers on an argument that, as Stefan has already pointed out, was then being advocated in the Brooklyn Times editorials, namely the need for a permanent brick closed conduit rather than an open canal. The main point of this argument was that an open canal would not protect the water supply from weather, debris, sewage, or tampering by nefarious individuals in the same ways that a closed conduit could. This topic was one that Whitman had addressed in the Times since at least the summer of 1858. But this manuscript is most closely related to a waterworks editorial that appears in the Brooklyn Times on March 16, 1859, which was titled, the quarrel between the water commissioners and the common council. That editorial includes the following intriguing and suggestive passage. We had intended to say something also on the subject of the change recommended by the commissioners of the canal between Hempstead and Jamaica into a brick conduit. We will only briefly remark that our emphatic opinion expressed last summer is more than confirmed by all our examinations since. The open earthen canal must be decided to give place to a permanent conduit. This statement implies that there was more to be said on the subject of the canal versus conduit argument, and that a longer piece might have been intended for publication. Given that the important questions in Brooklyn manuscript further elaborates upon precisely that argument, it is tempting to speculate that Whitman's manuscript paragraphs may have been intended for this March 16th 1859 Brooklyn Times editorial. But the story doesn't end there. Just because those paragraphs did not ultimately end up in the Brooklyn Times 
doesn't mean they weren't published at all. A few searches of newspaper databases for distinct phrases like closed brick conduit turned up a letter to the editor from March 25, 1859 that almost perfectly matched Whitman's important questions in Brooklyn manuscript. And the letter was even published under that very title. So we found important questions in Brooklyn in the New York Times rather than the Brooklyn Times. This New York Times letter contains most of the numerous edits that Whitman made on the manuscript pages, so it's almost certain that Whitman was its author. Whitman signed the letter as Civis, which suggests that he was writing from the perspective of a concerned citizen and forwarding an argument that he felt would be most beneficial for the public good of the residents of Brooklyn. What is significant about this find is that first, it contributes to recent efforts in Whitman studies to recover previously unknown text authored by the poet journalist. It is one of Whitman's earliest known published pieces in the New York Times. This also suggests that while Whitman may have been editing and writing numerous editorials on waterworks for the Brooklyn Times, his journalistic writings, even on that particular subject, were not confined to one publication in the late 1850s. We see Whitman here looking to publish in multiple papers and to establish relationships with newspapers and publishers that would open up new vistas for his future writings. That really begins to seem like an intervention in how we think about journalistic work at this time on the whole. So you have evidence that Whitman is likely writing for the Brooklyn Daily Times and other papers like the New York Times. Jason said scholars believe Whitman edited the Brooklyn Times. Jason, do you have any evidence that he was editing the paper? We think so, Matt. Another discovery we made is that in the summer of 1857, the proprietor of the paper, George C. Bennett, was on a month-long trip to Kentucky to visit Mammoth Cave. He was likely invited by L.J. Proctor, who owned the cave, and had invited Northeastern newspaper editors on a junket to publicize his new tourist attraction and the luxurious cave hotel that he built nearby, which housed between four and 500 guests. Starting in May of 1857, a correspondent called Cass, or C.A.S., who we believe was Caspian A. Sparks, who was a reporter for the Daily Times, began a series on a trip to the cave. This trip lasted until the end of the month. One year later, in a review in the Daily Times of the book The Mammoth Cave, Kentucky by Charles Wright, the reviewer named several members of the party who visited the cave and noted that Proctor, the proprietor of the cave, named many of the tunnels and halls there after, quote, our Williamsburg friends, including George C. Bennett, who, as you remember, owned the Daily Times. While Bennett was out of the office, we seem to have another clue that inclines us to believe that Whitman was serving as the de facto editor at this time, which fits with the long-standing belief among scholars that Whitman was at the Daily Times in 1857 in an editorial capacity. In effect, they had left Walt to run the shop. Then, does the paper start to sound more like Whitman once he's essentially the only guy in the office? Oh, absolutely. As soon as the staff dwindles, we can see not only more filler material, more letters, more ads, but also more overtly Whitmanian pieces appear in the paper. For instance, this fascinating little bit on prostitution. After dark, in the great city of New York, 
Any man passing along Broadway, between Houston and Fulton Streets, finds the western sidewalk full of prostitutes, jaunting up and down there by ones, twos, or threes, on the lookout for customers. Many of these girls are quite handsome, have a good-hearted appearance, and in encouraging circumstances might make respectable and happy women. Some of these prostitutes have their own rooms and keep house by themselves. Others live in the usual establishments on a larger scale, owned by some older middle-aged women and tenanted by six, eight, or a dozen prostitutes. Of late, there are a great many cellars, drinking places, number them German, where the principal business is prostitution. There are not a few in Canal Street and in Greenwich Street, and indeed they are to be found in all parts of the city. Though of course not acknowledged or talked about or even alluded to in respectable society, the plain truth is that 19 out of 20 of the mass of American young men who live in or visit the great cities are more or less familiar with houses of prostitution and are customers of them. A large portion of the young men become acquainted with all the best-known ones in the city. What shame, what concealment, what degradation, what long-suffering sight they not expose every one of them. There is so little intercommunion for the young men between themselves and the select classes of pious, orderly, fatherly persons. We've also found evidence that Whitman was doing some on-the-ground reporting for the Brooklyn Daily Times in these years as well, which is interesting. And it was one of those things that we just sort of stumbled onto by chance. Um, I was reading through some of Whitman's notebooks from the 1850s for a completely unrelated project, and I came upon one page that seemed like it was some notes for a piece of journalism. It talked about the mayor and police captains and the common council, uh, stuff that we were regularly seeing pieces about in the Brooklyn Daily Times. And the piece also had a long vertical line drawn through it, which is usually something Whitman does when he wants to mark a piece of writing as something he's made use of. So we started digging around at the newspapers from these years, and Stefan came upon a piece in the New York Atlas that seemed to talk about a similar event, albeit in different, slightly different words. That, though, gave us a narrower time period, and so we went looking in the Brooklyn Daily Times from those days, and sure enough, there's a piece in the issue of July 3rd, 1857, that matches Whitman's notes almost word for word. And the paper came out in the evening, and the event that it's reporting on happened just earlier that same day, which almost certainly means Whitman was there covering the event and taking notes, which he then dashed back to the Times office and wrote up. Surrender of King Fernando and all his men. Mayor Wood of New York this forenoon issued an order to his various police captains, the municipals, to call in their men at four o'clock today, Friday, and deliver up the city property, as far as they personally are the holders of it, to the lawful police commissioners, after which they will be disbanded. The station houses are to remain under charge of the captains till further action of the Common Council. We recommend Wood to go hunt up General Walker that they twain may retire very far away from these parts and mourn out the rest of their lives. Both, however, will be accompanied by the hootings and cursings of the many poor fellows they have so bitterly deceived. So, wait, they're talking about disbanding the New York City police here? Yep. 
Indeed they are, uh, or, or at least some of the police. This was part of the aftermath of the so-called New York City police riot of 1857. It's a bit complicated, but in a nutshell, because of some controversy about the enforcement of a new state liquor law, for a brief time in 1857, New York City actually had two competing police forces, one controlled by the Democratic mayor, Fernando Wood, and the other controlled by a group of commissioners appointed by the Republican state legislature. The state-supported police tried to arrest Mayor Wood. He resisted, backed up by the police that were loyal to him. But then the New York Court of Appeals ruled that the state's police force was legal, and Wood was forced to disband his so-called municipal police. And that's that announcement that Whitman was reporting on. So this is a really fascinating moment, right? Wood disbands the municipal police on July 3rd. And the next day, of course, is July 4th. So your New Yorkers are out, they're celebrating, they're drinking, they're getting a little rowdy, and not surprisingly, right, fights break out. Fights between unhappy supporters of Wood and the state police. Various gangs join that fray, and some supporting each side. So opposing police forces and opposing gangs were battling it out. And that turned, of course, into a huge brawl. At least 12 people were killed. Dozens were injured. It was really bad news. And you may have actually seen a version of these events because they're depicted in Martin Scorsese's Gangs of New York. And it does seem like Whitman might have been there during that riot. We know he was in Manhattan reporting on the disbanding of the police on July 3rd. And in the very next issue after the event, the lead editorial in the Brooklyn Times reports on the 4th of July riot and notes that the writer of the piece was, quote, there while the disturbances were going on. That piece also mentions walking along Broadway, which is a frequent Whitman trope in his journalistic writings. And this is, of course, also around the time that Whitman becomes friends with an actual police officer by the name of George McWaters, who joined the police force shortly after the riot and who was hanging around at Whitman's favorite beer cellar a little bit later. And this is, of course, all very interesting because it really changes the way that we think about what Whitman might have been doing for the Brooklyn Times. And, of course, where in the paper we look for things that Whitman may have written. Because the traditional view of him as the quote-unquote editor would mainly lead us to look in the editorial columns, which are usually on the second page, first and second column. But if he's also doing this sort of boots-on-the-ground reporting that we've seen him do here, a reporting on local events, that opens up a whole new territory of potential Whitman writings that we can explore here. Really amazing. So then is your thought that Whitman wasn't actually editing the Brooklyn Times, or is there something else going on here? It's interesting, Matt. This project has helped us rethink what we mean by editor during this period. Typically, when we think of Whitman as an editor, we think of a person whose job sits atop a pyramid of workers, including journalists, printers, even newsboys on the street, and who is ultimately responsible for the product. However, Whitman's indistinct role at the Brooklyn Times and the cacophony of voices and arguments we read in the paper has led us to wonder if modern scholars took the 20th century idea of a newspaper editor and projected it backwards onto the past. Instead, what we're discovering is that the Brooklyn Daily Times of the late 1850s, a local paper under a single proprietor, was likely the product of many hands who worked in an environment that was closer to an artisan's workshop, where workers were skilled in many steps in the production process and played various roles as needed. 
In this light, Whitman, as an editor, likely did many things. Perhaps some reporting, if he had an interest or connection to a source. Likely some editorializing, if he was particularly animated or expert on a topic. And even some clipping of articles from other sources for page one, along with the arrangement of a day's issue. Karen Carbiner notes that the 1858 Brooklyn Directory lists Whitman as an editor, but does not give him any affiliation. However, in the same directory, George Bennett is listed as editor and proprietor of the Brooklyn Daily Times. And so we're starting to wonder if by editor, Whitman designated his trade and his skill rather than his affiliation. This makes some sense since the 1830s, Whitman had worked on newspapers, editing his first in 1838, and before that, he was apprenticed as a printer since he was 11 years old. And so in this regard, we can infer that what Whitman meant by editor was that he was skilled at building newspapers, from gathering information, writing articles and editorials, choosing interesting stories from other papers, arranging a day's issue, overseeing its printing and getting it out each day. He might have had a hand in all of these steps of the production process and was likely paid piecemeal for much of this work. This helps us explain why he was likely writing for and editing other publications during the same period. He was simply plying his trade as a maker of newspapers wherever he could find the work. That sounds like something that might have implications for how we think about the production of periodicals more broadly, too. Stephanie, tell me, what other sorts of things do you all have leads on? In the coming months, we're planning to explore whether Whitman was writing about topics of health and exercise for the Brooklyn Times. The work of one of our grant consultants, Zach Turpin, led to the recovery of Whitman's 1858 journalistic series, Manly Health and Training which was published in another paper, the New York Atlas, during the same period Whitman would have been writing for the Brooklyn Times. We plan to search the Times for evidence of Whitman's contributions on topics that appear in manly health, including dietary advice and even training for prize fights. We're also going to look more closely at some of Whitman's manuscripts that may have been written during the same time period, including one focusing on French cookery. Whitman seems very interested in diet, cuisine, and nutrition during this period. We hope to learn whether these manuscripts, which appear to be drafts of a series of articles on the subject, were published in the Brooklyn Times or another New York newspaper. It is likely that other previously unknown journalistic pieces by Whitman beyond the Brooklyn Times remain to be discovered. We hope to contribute further to recent recovery efforts in Whitman studies by locating some of these pieces. Certainly what y'all have been describing already offers a lot of new and provocative material to think through um, for those of us who study and teach Whitman uh, and and for anybody who wants to do a remake of Gangs of New York, uh, obviously. Um, Do you have any final thoughts about this work that you've been doing? So we're all Whitman people here, and this project has certainly already led to some really interesting Whitman discoveries and will undoubtedly lead to more, as Stephanie suggested. Uh, But one of the things we really like about this project is that its approach is applicable well beyond just Whitman. We're hoping that it can serve as a sort of test case for other scholars hunting for the work of writers who they know published material anonymously or pseudonymously, Uh, particularly shorter pieces that would have appeared in periodicals and which are typically harder to identify just because there's less text to base your analysis on. 
So one of the main ideas behind this NEH grant was to demonstrate the effectiveness of just a different method of authorship attribution for the sort of anonymous periodical material in which the 19th century abounds. And so far, we're pleased with the results. We're just less than halfway into this grant, so who knows what will turn up in the second half. And at the end of these three years, so by the end of 2023, we will publish all of the Whitman-authored pieces that we've discovered on the Walt Whitman Archive website, where they'll be freely available to anyone that wants to read them. That's whitmanarchive.org, by the way. And if our estimates about the extent of Whitman's involvement in the Brooklyn Daily Times are anywhere near correct, this new material is going to more than quadruple the amount of journalism available on the Whitman Archive. So just as a bunch of Whitman journalism nerds, we're fairly excited about that. Just extraordinary work. And I know many of our listeners will be eager to read this newly Whitman-identified material. Thank you, Jason, Stephanie, Stefan, and Kevin for sharing your work so far. Thanks also to Zach Turpin for being our voice of Whitman, and we'd like to thank the wonderful grad students contributing to this project, namely Elva Moreno del Rio, Tara Ballard, Jeff Hill, Rima Kubra, and Jason McCormick, all at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And thanks to the production staff of the C19 podcast, and especially Lizzie LaRude, and last but not least, thanks so much to our audience for tuning in today. Thank you for listening to the C19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19Podcast or get in touch with us at c19podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.